The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes, taking a long look at life under the sun. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. We have been trotting through the book of Ecclesiastes over the last couple of months, and the book of Ecclesiastes is sort of an overlooked piece of ancient wisdom literature from the Old Testament. Uh, When people begin reading the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes is not typically a place where people start. They're usually told to start with uh, the Gospel of John or maybe look to the Psalms and kind of work your way through there because Ecclesiastes can be kind of confusing. It can be a bit perplexing and deflating because Ecclesiastes is brutally honest about what we will experience in life. It acknowledges the dangers, toils, and snares that only a hymnodist like John Newton in Amazing Grace can sweeten with a melody. See, Ecclesiastes is a philosophy of life written by this character that we know as the preacher. Uh, This is a man who has arrived by most worldly standards. He has it all, so to speak, and he's writing to men and women who are in the pursuit of what he has. It's written to kids who look at Michael Jordan and say, I want to be like Mike, or maybe LeBron, right, whoever the the greatest of all time is right now. I want success. I want a great legacy. He's writing to the Zuckerbergs and Casanovas of our day who are chasing innovation, money, clout, wisdom, women, adventure, and luxury. He's writing to those who are searching for meaning and wisdom in the godless footsteps of Stephen Hawking and Christopher Hitchens. And from this vantage point of having it all, the preacher says it's all vanity. He says, everything under the sun, chasing after anything you see, is like chasing after the wind. It's vapor. You think you have something in your hands just to look and see there's nothing there. Now, this is not because the stuff that we occupy ourselves with chasing is bad. In fact, at the core of it, most of those things are good things that God has given us, but they have become over-glorified, and they have been overextended beyond their reach. It's like the high school girl who spends her day staring at her smartphone, searching through social media for acceptance and meaning and value. We do the same with money and pleasure and family. Good things, but not meant to give us meaning. And we find that the tighter we clench our fists around these things, the more it slips through our fingers. Paul Simon said it well in in a song. He said, the nearer you are to your destination, the more your slip sliding away. And if you take a minute to pause, to, to stop where you are, step out of the moment and look back at your life and reflect what's transpired up to this point, you'll notice that life itself is slip sliding away. Every heartbeat, every breath, inches you closer to the day that your eulogy will be read, to the day that you return to the dust from where you came. Now, most people don't love thinking about this, 
Right? You might be in here like, what, why, why are you talking about this right now? This is supposed to be an uplifting hour of my week. Let's get to the good stuff. But today the preacher has different intentions for us. We don't like this talk of death because maybe it's fear or uncertainty of what's to come. We'd rather have our backs turned toward death. As if we were to keep it out of sight and out of mind, that would delay its arrival and maybe convince death that we're not interested in what it's selling. But today, the preacher wants to spin us around. He wants us to do an about face so we can look death square in the eyes. Try not to blink. And as you study his sunken in eyes as deep as graves, what you'll realize is that you're not in a grave yet. There's still time to protest death. But the question is, how? And so if you would open your Bibles with me to page 321 in the Pew Bible, we're going to get started working our way through this. And if you don't have a Bible, take that Bible home with you. That's our gift to you. We want you to have it. And we will start... Excuse me, start working our way through Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Excuse me. Now, leading up to chapter 9, preacher, the preacher has been frustrated by some of these things that he's been observing as life under the sun throws his way. In the previous chapter, or two chapters, he's been realizing that the wicked prosper while the righteous struggle. He's identifying that people aren't getting what they deserve. The wicked get what the righteous deserve, while the righteous seemingly get what the wicked deserve. And to the preacher, it is very bothersome. But he has the ability to recognize that both adversity and prosperity come from the hand of God. But it also means that it can be a little bit confusing. Because the question is, when we, when we sit in these times of, uh, of adversity, we're wondering, is God for me or is he against me? Does God want my good or does he want my bad? Is he accepting me or rejecting me? Does God love me or does he want nothing to do with me? See, that's the big question That starts us off here in verse 1 of chapter 9. Let's take a look. But all this I, that's the preacher, all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it's love or hate, man doesn't know. Both are before him. See, this question doesn't have any resolve. He's like, is God love or is it hate for us? And there's no resolve. There's no clear answer. The preacher says, man does not know. But verse 2 shows what the preacher does know for sure. He says, no matter who you are, death will find you. He says this in verse 2. It is the same for all, since the same event, that is death, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, as one is, as, sorry, as the good one is, so is the sinner. 
And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. He's saying the same event. Death will find every single person. Regardless of, regardless of your ethnicity, of your race, regardless of your morals and values, your social economic status, your religion, or if you have no religion, mortality has a 100% success rate. One out of every one people will die. Death is certainly the truest equal opportunity employer that we know. The great equalizer. No one is beyond its reach. And if you look further down in verse 11, he, he kind of resumes this line of thinking, and he's going to tell us it doesn't matter who you are, what you got going for you, death is still going to catch up with you. He says in verse 11, Again I saw that under the sun the race is not to, to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor with those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. See, regardless of how physically fit you are, how mentally sharp you are, how theologically astute you are, death is coming. Time and chance are working as co-conspirators to inch you toward your death day. As time elapses, the clock goes on and on and on. There's no stopping it. And as chance plays a role in everyone's life, and when he talks about chance, he's not talking about coincidence or randomness or luck. He's talking about the occurrences that God gives out. Right, the lot that God, and everybody has their own lot. Everyone has their own life experience, but God hands out these occurrences in life to everyone. And the preacher knows that there is an occasional suddenness of God's sovereignty. There are some things that we can see coming, okay, right? If you're filling your body with junk food and drinking pop all the time, it should be no surprise when type 2 diabetes comes knocking at your door. We can see that coming. But there are some things in life that are sudden, in a moment. Change happens. I think of the story of Joni Erickson Tata. She was a young, athletic woman, 18-year-old girl, enjoying a hot summer day out by the lake. She jumps into the water, not realizing how shallow it is. And in that one moment, she becomes a quadriplegic for the rest of her life bound to a wheelchair forever. Sometimes things change in a moment. And those things are not beyond the sovereignty of God. A lot of times we think that it is. Right? God, God forgot to pay attention to what was going on. But that is a hand that God is willing to deal with, deal to us so he can walk us through this. Now, as time and chance work as co-conspirators moving us toward our end, there's the reality that no one knows when their end is. We can look at our birthday and say, that's when I started, that's when I was born, but nobody has the foresight to see, this is my death day. And that's what the preacher says in verse 12. He says, for man does not know his time. 
No one can look at the set calendar and say, this is my day. Only the Lord knows the days which he has ordained for you. Now, some of us are going to live long, healthy lives, perhaps longer than we'd like, while others of us will be snatched away in a moment. Some freak accident happens. Though death might come at a surprising or a sudden moment, its arrival is certainly not a surprise at all. And when, when death comes, when death happens, the preacher has no problem labeling it for what it is. He says it's evil. It's an evil time. It's a bad, it's wicked, it's deserving of scorn and resentment. He keeps going on in verse 12. He says, says this, he says, For the man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. See, just as the fish goes on its way, it's happy, having a great day out in the water, and then all of a sudden, boom, snatched up, caught in the net. Death can come suddenly like that too. The fish certainly wasn't asking for a net to catch him that day. But death will come up on us the same way. It's an unavoidable snare that eventually and suddenly strikes. But the preacher isn't just concerned with the the suddenness of evil or uh, suddenness of death being an evil thing. He calls death itself under any circumstances. And evil, if you go back to verse 3, excuse me, and we'll keep looking here. He says, excuse me, this is an evil in all that is done and under the sun, that the same event happens to all. See, given his previous list of the different people, the good and the bad, you might think that the evildoers are deserving of this ending. Right? People like Hitler and Pol Pot and Charles Manson, men who are full of evil, certainly to die at the ends of an evil time. But shouldn't the good people get off the hook? Right? Shouldn't there be an alternate ending for those who do good? Yeah. See, death was never meant to be a part of the human experience. Did you know that? Death was never meant to be part of the human experience. Humans were created with the capacity to live forever. Here's what I mean. If we look back to the Garden of Eden, when God created all the world and set Adam and Eve to take care of it, to to see to its fruitfulness, to see it multiply and grow, he put two trees in the middle of the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. The only tree that God prohibited man from eating was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That means Adam and Eve had access to the tree of life anytime they wanted. They could go and feast, and every time they feast on that tree, life accumulates. But the tree of knowledge of good and evil was placed there, and it was prohibited with 
a warning with a punishment attached to it that if you eat this tree, if you eat the fruit of this tree, surely you will die. That's the first time death is mentioned. You see, the truly good people, the people who perfectly obey God, they are the people who have the promise of never, ever tasting death. Unfortunately, the preacher says there's no such persons out there who are exclusively and entirely good. In verse 3, he keeps going. He says, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of children of man are full of evil, and madness is in the hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. You see, he's saying that that the good people are extinct. Though people live their lives as it's full of madness and foolishness, their hearts are full of evil. Now, I get it. You might be pushing back at this a little bit. I, I don't blame you. Right? This idea of my heart being full of evil is sort of a hard thing to come to grips with. Right? My heart isn't full of evil. There's, there's some stuff that's in there that's, that's pretty good. But think of it like this. The air in your house doesn't have to be completely and exclusively carbon monoxide in order to poison you. A little bit of carbon monoxide can ruin the whole air, even though maybe it's nitrogen and oxygen and other gases that are floating around. A little bit of carbon monoxide can poison you. It it, it contaminates all the good stuff. So when you think of your heart being full of evil, don't think of it as in terms of volume. Think of it as in every ounce of your heart is contaminated with just a little bit of evil. Now, there are going to be some evil pockets. Trust me. I know my heart. There's some evil pockets up in my heart. I know that's true of you too. And actually, Paul, the Apostle Paul, uses a similar analogy in Galatians 5 and 1 Corinthians 5 with with the idea of of yeast, right? If you add a little bit of yeast to, to a lump of dough, right? Lump of dough, sugar and salt and butter. I don't know what else goes into it, but you get the idea. There's a lot of other stuff besides yeast and bread, but a little bit of yeast is going to make that dough rise. And he says, make sure the dough is unleavened. Take that little bit of evil out and your life, your heart won't be contaminated. Because of our sin-infused life, We are plagued with a life of madness and we kick up the dust of evil just to turn around and die. Romans 5.12 tells us wherever sin is, death comes following and because we are all sinful, death is gonna find us all. Now the preacher's outrage has just as much to do with the reality of death as the state of our hearts. He's not just upset that we're gonna die someday, he's upset that our hearts are contaminated with evil. And there's no way to really cleanse ourselves of it. And while life is riddled with madness and it ends with death, loathing and despair is not the outlook the preacher determines to take on life. 
he's, he's oddly optimistic for some reason. See, as long as blood circulates the body, he says there is hope. Take a look at verse 4. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. I love that. That's a great saying. Just think about it. What, what would you rather have guarding your home? I mean, a lion, that's pretty cool. If you've got a lion on a, on a leash and he's guarding your home, that's pretty cool. But what good is a dead lion? Better to have a living dog than a dead lion. Life, what he's saying here is life at its worst is better than nothing. Which is basically what he goes on to describe death as in verses 5 through 6. He says, for the living know that they will die. That's the advantage of being alive. But the dead, they don't know anything. They have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy has already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. There's no more do-overs, no more retries. That's it. Death says, finito, you're done, you're finished. Death knows nothing, it has nothing. It has no reward, no benefit. In 100 years, Anne Lamont says, all new people, you're forgotten. Life moves on. The energy that you've extended in this life doesn't really matter anymore. Things end at death, and there's no more experience for you of what's under the sun. Now, I need to do a little bit of clarifying here, because this can be kind of a confusing part here. If we read this at face value, it sounds like the preacher is saying that nothing happens at death at all. It's like a black void. That's kind of what it sounds like. It, it seems like he's sort of a, a nihilist. Right? The person, person who thinks this way is someone who looks at life and says, this is all that there is. There's no God. There's no heaven. There's no hell. We might as well just live it up here. And religion is just a bit to keep fools preoccupied. Now, most Midwesterners, most of the people in our city will deny this worldview, at least with their mouths. They'll say, of course there's a God out there. Right? Of course there's such thing as heaven and hell. Heaven's for the good people, but hell's for the bad people. However, though people say they believe that, that belief or what they are professing, they don't actually functionally believe that. Or at least it has no impact or very little impact on the way that they live their life. And so in a way, they live just as a nihilist does on their way, doing their own thing as if there is no God. Now, I would even dare to say that there are some Christians, people who call themselves Christians, at least, who live like this. The only difference between them and, and people who aren't in a church on Sunday mornings is the fact that they have plans on Sunday morning from 10 a.m. to 11.30. If your belief only impacts Sunday morning and not the other six days of your week, then you don't really believe what you say you believe. Right? They still, people who say, you know, there is a God, all this and that, that, but they go on living the way that they want to the other six days of the week, they're, they're basically living life on their own terms. Their tagline for life is YOLO, 
right? You only live once. Live it up. So, so they, they inevitably turn to meaning and satisfaction and the joy in life. They extract it from creation rather than creator. Now, this is a life that the preacher is pretty sympathetic to. Right? This is a life that he's tried out for himself. He, he's given it a go. He's tried living as if there's no God. Just absorb everything that's before you that's under the sun. And he's done that. At the end of his exper- he, he, experiment, he says, it's all vanity. Living this way only compounds the misery, the vexation, the frustration of life. But this isn't what the preacher is saying. Okay, That's, that's not... Cross it out. That's not what the preacher's saying. The preacher is not a nihilist, and he makes that clear in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and chapter 8, where he acknowledges God. He says, Fear God. Mind your steps when you come into the house of God. Man does not know God's ways. And then again, he brings it up here in verses 7 through 10 with a, a different view. Right? And if he didn't have this view of God's existence and how God inf- influences the way that we live our life under the sun, he wouldn't have written the book of Ecclesiastes at all. There'd be blank pages in your Bible. But he acknowledges the existence of God. He acknowledges that at the end of death, there is an afterlife, heaven or hell. But he does also affirm that when you die, life as you know it now stops. There is an end. You stop, but things go on without you. And in verse 10, right, he gives a little bit of clarity here, not a ton, but he mentions that people go to Sheol. That's a place where the dead reside. Now, it's used in poetry. Not often is it used literally, but what the word Sheol is meant to convey is the place where the dead reside. It's like this underground wasteland, just under the earth. He's essentially saying that when you die, you're going to get put in the ground, and there's not a lot of stuff going on down there. And later on in chapter 12, he's going to give a little bit more clarity about what happens at death. He says, sure, your body goes down to the dust, but your spirit goes to be with God, returns to God. And the preacher isn't wrong about that by any means. He just has an incomplete understanding due to where he is situated in redemptive history. He's riding several hundred years before Jesus even comes on the map. And so in a sense, it's like he, he's, he's writing a movie review at only 45 minutes into a three-hour thriller. Right? He, he's asserting his conclusion here, and he doesn't have the whole picture yet. Now, what he's going to say isn't necessarily wrong. It's just incomplete. He doesn't quite yet comprehend the thoroughness of God's power over death through resurrection. And so we've got to give him a little bit of grace here. Right? We have a better vantage point than he did when he wrote this. But even with his limited understanding, his prescription on how we go about living life is still valid. He's still going to say, in light of the reality of death, and this is still true today, in light of the reality of death, this is how you ought to live. Death is going to come and it's going to snatch your life away, but here's how you make the most out of what you have. 
And so here in verse 7 through 10, this is his prescription to us. Here's what we ought to do. Go. Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, fellas. All of the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you're going. And what he's saying here, do you want to protest the great evil of death? Enjoy life while you have it. Do not let death rob you prematurely. Eat good food, drink fine wine, get your good scotch, make your heart glad with the gifts that God has given you. Take care of your stuff. Make sure your clothes are white. Clean them up. Let the abundance of God flow over you. Don't let oil be lacking from your head. Love deeply. Oh, love deeply. Enjoy sex with your spouse. Work hard. Work really hard. Make beautiful things. Raise a family. Plant a garden. Build a home. Exert your energy while you have it. Oh, One of my favorite books of all time is this book called Death by Living. It's written by a guy named N.D. Wilson. And he has a quote, an excerpt that I just can't help but share with you because every time I read it, I get so fired up and it goes perfectly with what the preacher is saying. Here he goes. I think we have this on the screen. It's a little bit long. Lay down your life. Your heartbeats cannot be hoarded. Your reservoir of breaths is draining away. You have hands. Blister them while you can. You have bones. Make them strain. They cannot carry, they can carry nothing in the grave. You have lungs. Let them spill with laughter. With an average life expectancy of 78.2 years in the United States, subtracting eight hours a day for sleep, I have around 250,000 conscious hours remaining to me in which I could be smiling or scowling, rejoicing in my life, in this race, in this story, or moaning and complaining about my troubles. I can be giving my fingers, my back, my mind, my words, my breaths to my wife and my children and my neighbors, or I can grasp after the vapor and the vanity for myself, dragging my feet, afraid to die, and therefore afraid to live. And like Adam, I will still die in the end. And he goes on, he says, drink your wine, laugh from your gut, burden your moments with thankfulness, 
Be as empty as you can be when that clock winds down. Spend your life. That's what's up. To think of life as a tank worth draining because when it's emptied, then it's full. That's the paradox of living. Empty your life, drain it for all it's worth, and then it's full. Live so fiercely that you can arrive at your funeral with no regrets, with every ounce of energy expended, making a conscious effort to savor the flavor of grace that God serves up in the buffet of life. Dispense every bit of love you have to give. Go find somebody to dump your love on. Give it all you got. Waste nothing. Even in your rest, rest robustly. See, the way we protest death is by living. N.D. Wilson's got another quote. I just love it. He says, glory is sacrifice. Glory is exhaustion. Glory is having nothing left to give, almost. It is death by living. Now, there's a key piece to really bring this all together. There's a key piece that I skipped over in verse 7 that we have to visit or else it looks like the preacher is a hypocrite. Okay, if you've been with us since the beginning, in chapter 1, the preacher has basically renounced all the stuff that he just told us to enjoy. He told us that if you find your life filling up your life with the pleasure of, of food and wine, it's, it's vanity. If you give yourself to your family and trying to create a legacy, it's going to not really matter because in 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, you're not going to be remembered. Give yourself to the work, it's just going to fall apart. Right, so it looks like he's a little bit of a hypocrite here unless we understand things from his perspective. So the key to making sense of this is to see how the preacher views things in relation to God. In chapter 1, like I said, he's looking for meaning and significance in creation and money, and sex, and food, rather than the creator. And when we elevate gifts beyond their station, we try to use them for what they're not made for. I was fixing my brakes a couple days ago, last week, and I was using a screwdriver the way I shouldn't have been using it, and I basically ripped off my fingertip. Right? When things are used the way they're not meant to be used, it's dangerous. The same is true of God's gifts. When we use money or family as a means of security or our homes are used as a mechanism for comfort, when our promotions and awards and our legacy is a means of approval, any time that something is doing a job that is only intended for God to do, that is called idolatry. That's what the Bible calls it. Tim Keller says idolatry is taking a good thing and elevating it to be a God thing. And when you do that, elevating a good thing to a God thing empties that good thing of the enjoyment that's to be had inside of it. 
Now, ironically, the life that Preacher said was vanity in chapter 1 contains the same components as the enjoyable life in chapter 9. Only because chapter 9, the preacher has a different perspective on these things because he keeps them in relationship to God. Look at, look at verse 7 here. Go eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. There's a mindfulness to God here. He goes on. He, he says, uh, go live this life because this is your portion in life and it is your it's your toil with which God's given you under the sun. He, he's keeping things in perspective of the giver of the gifts. Only by properly pra- placing God supreme in our life and viewing everything in relation to him can we really, truly enjoy life. This is a life of God mindfulness. It's when we look at the gifts that we have, the good things in our life, and we realize where they come from. Trent said it earlier. God is the giver of all good things. Everything that we have that is good is meant to point us back up to God. Now let me just tell you, this is the essence of sanctification. What is that word? Sanctification is this, the process of becoming more God-minded and more God-like or God-shaped in our lives, where our lives start to look like Jesus. One of the key pieces of sanctification is not necessarily how much you read your Bible or how much you pray or all the mission events that you go to or this or that. It's not about that. Sanctification is primarily how God-minded and how God-shaped your life becomes. Now, certainly, prayer and Bible study and serving and mission are going to be parts of that. But it's primarily about the way that you see things and how you can see God behind what's before you. It's when the good things are viewed in relationship to God who is supremely good. That's the only way you can enjoy the good things in life without worshiping. You have to have the perspective of God. Now let me just ask you, what good things are in your life currently that you are pushing up, you're extending beyond their limits? What good thing are you treating as if it's God? We all do this. We all have this, this propensity to move in that direction, taking a good thing and elevating it above what it is. So let, let me just suggest a couple of things here. We're on the, the brink of summer here. Vacation season's kicking up. The vacation that you take this summer is a means to helping you enjoy God. I was thinking about so many people on their vacation live godlessly. Right? Oh, it's a day to just... Veg and do nothing, right? I can turn that off. I, I'm guilty of this. No, no. Vacation, the rest, the, the leisure that we find there is meant to point us to God and enjoyment of Him. That steak and mashed potato dinner, the beer and the wine are extension of God's grace. Sex with your spouse is an extension of God's grace. Your kids' sports, the NBA finals, Major League Baseball is a far better experience when viewed in relationship to God. 
Now, if we're going to live life, I'm closing up here. If we're going to live life in view of God, we must also view death in view of God. Something That's something the preacher had a limited ability of doing because he, he's basically saying that death is coming and it's going to come with finality, so live it up while you can. But we have a per, new perspective on death. We have a new perspective on how things are because of Jesus' encounter with death. Right? Jesus was crucified. Jesus died. He was buried. He was in Sheol. He was among the dead. But then Jesus did what nobody else had ever done. Jesus gets up. Jesus comes up out of the grave. Resurrection Sunday, right? The biggest Sunday in the life of a Christian, life of the church. Jesus is victorious over death. But here's the incredible thing about this. Not only did Jesus defeat death, he went and he defeated death in our place. Right? We couldn't do it. We couldn't do it because we were among the wicked and the evil, our hearts full of evil, but Jesus was the exception to that rule. See, where everybody else was full of evil, Jesus wasn't. He was perfect and righteous, always perfectly obeying his Father. Therefore, his death wasn't to atone for his sins like ours would be. His death was to atone for our sins, which we could not atone for ourselves. His life was, in given, was given in place of ours. And by faith, when we trust in the work that Christ has done for us, it is life, death, resurrection, and ascension. It is by Christ's righteousness that we live. First of all, we're made righteous. He became our sin. We become his righteousness. But in faith, in his righteousness, in his righteousness, we live. Our life is extended Jesus came to give us life to the fullest, to give us eternal life. Now, because of the gospel, because of what Christ has done for us, we do not have to live in fear of death's approach. See, God in his power has the ability to transform even the most wicked and sinister of things. God can take what was meant for evil and transform it into what is good. Nobody else can do that. God can take what is evil and transform it into good. George Herbert, he's an old dead dude. He said this, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made death just a gardener. So cool. Death puts us in the ground, but the gospel turns us into new life. That we pop out out of the ground. With resurrection power, God wakes us up. He gives us new life. No longer are we dead in our sins and trespasses. No longer are we stuck in a void of nothingness. God gives us a new life that begins right now. And in this new life, the purpose, the purpose of this new life is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. By savoring God's goodness now and for eternity. Knowing that whatever joy that we experience, even whatever, whatever darkness or, or tough seasons we experience, we'll experience something far greater in the coming life when we are with God, face to face with Jesus. 
everything else in this life pales in comparison to what's to come. Now here at the Lord's table, the preacher started off with a question that he didn't have an answer for, right? Is God for me? Is he against me? Does he love me? Does he hate me? Here at the Lord's table, in light of light, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we find our answer. The gospel tells us, without a doubt, God is for us. And if God is for us, nothing, not even death, can be against us. See, in God's hands, death frees us from this evil time and launches us forward into a time of new creation. The new creation starts internally. The old is gone, the new has come. And what God is doing internally and making people new, he's going to do it externally in this new heavens, new earth, when all of the world is filled with his glory. There's no longer sin or brokenness or wickedness, no temptation. God makes all things new. And there, face to face, we enjoy the giver of all his good gifts. This is what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like a party. Your life, the Christian life, should be like a party. That's verses 7 through 10. That's what the Christian life looks like. The Christian life is the kingdom of God breaking in, and it is near, it is at hand right now. So church, let us live like it. Let's live to the fullest. Let's approach our death by living fiercely. Let's be people in our city where other people look at us and there's something about that person where they're getting the most out of life. And it's not because we idealize or idolize the things that God gives us, the good gifts. It's because we love God and because we love God, we can enjoy the stuff around us. Let us live and die like Christians to the glory of God. Father, thank you for your gospel, that no longer do we need to be in fear of death, no longer do we need to be concerned about what happens, but we have an assurance, we have a hope, a hope that is stronger than the preachers who is just based in being alive. We have a a hope that will weather us through death. What a power, what a God, what a Savior. Jesus, you are certainly the way and the truth and life, and we come to you and we cling with hope. Father, if if our faith is weak, or maybe we don't have faith yet, Would you change that in our hearts? Would you give us the faith to believe in your power, in your life, your victory over the grave for our good and for the glory of our city and our lives? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.